Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Facts here on Explore Christianity. Thank you for tuning in on your Saturday afternoon or going into the afternoon if you're on the West Coast. As we finish up this section, particularly on the Gospel of Luke, one of my favorite Gospels to examine, one of my favorite to study, spending many years uh, dealing with the internal evidence of Luke as well as doing an entire exegesis on the book itself as well with Acts, of course, because I think it's really hard to separate the two. It's almost a part one, part two. Uh, and we will be getting into Acts. I think what we're going to do is we're actually going to stop uh, next week and from going into John and actually do Acts before John. Uh, one, it's connected to Luke's writings, and so we might as well keep it together. Two, uh, within that, it is also before John and date, in my opinion. So we're going to do it that way. Uh, but just a couple things to go over from last week when we did part one of Luke, I want to remind us of, particularly in the Muratorian fragment, uh, I demonstrated a hypothesis by just using the anti-Marcionite prologue along with the Muratorian fragment, how I believe if we construct the two witnesses there, which are second century into the third century, we pretty much can locate a particular date or at least a close region to it. Uh, the writer, his location of where he wrote it, even really a biography about the writer himself, his place of death, his place of origin, his year of death, 84 years old, never married, never had children, uh, died there in central Greece, uh, born in Syria. We looked at all these things that if you missed last week's program, please go back and listen to whether it be on podcast with facts or you're watching it on YouTube with Explore Christianity. Either way, go back and check that out as we looked at the early attestation of identifying the person of interest that has been unanimously given to Luke. And so when we talked about him, one of the things that I made the point of last week that that I think really needs to be illustrated again and again. And it's a question that needs to be taken into consideration when we're talking about a guy like Luke, particularly the fact that he is not a well-known character or nor was he ever attributed to being a follower of Jesus. He came later in these old texts that we've been talking about in the early citations of the fathers that we've been talking about have placed him later on in history after Jesus's ascension. He was saved probably during the Pauline ministry, and then became a follower of Jesus and a follower of Paul, he would not have been a part of that original group. And the question that must be posed is, is why in the world would there be a document? And, I, and, I, and it was Luke Morrison, that, uh, or excuse me, Leon Morrison, who pointed this out about Luke. He asked the question, he said, if he is not that we know of a renowned character of an eyewitness or somebody who was with Jesus or miraculously healed by Jesus, raised from the dead by Jesus, or a follower as an apostle of Jesus, what good is it to consider this book to be attributed to that guy as a selling point, especially in the preface of his writing where he states, we receive this information from those that heard him. And basically, many had already attempted to put together an account of Jesus, just like those who heard him, meaning there were secondary texts. There were secondhand witnesses 
who were trying to compile text to equal that of the primary witnesses. And he said they failed, as in they undertook the opportunity to do so and they didn't succeed. But he was going after the, the same concept, but he wasn't going to do it apart from the eyewitnesses, but with their testimony. But what good would it be for Luke, who's not a profound or well-known or really a big deal in that time, to put together a text with a gospel narrative of Jesus when he's admitting from the get-go he was not an eyewitness? He's only taking the testimony of the eyewitnesses is in compiling their testimonies to produce one on behalf of them, and particularly Paul, what good is it to give him credit? Like, you see this in the Gnostic text, and I've talked about this before, you get the Gospel of Mary, you know, because she was with Jesus, who's an eyewitness, the first one to get to see Jesus resurrected. Uh, then you have the Gospel of Thomas, naturally, he's an apostle, or the Gospel of Peter, and then you even have letters between Peter and Philip and all, and then John and James and all of these writings that are attributed to these apostles. Why are they putting the apostles' names? Because to sell them, to get their message accepted and brought in, you have to, you have to have proper authentication of that letter. And to put an apostle's name or an eyewitness's name on it instantly gives you the chance of selling it, really. So Luke being attributed to this by the churches unanimously in all the world really isn't a good selling point if that's all you're trying to do as a forgery. He's not really a credible guy outside of the fact he traveled with Paul. He's only famous because Paul's famous. He's really a no-name compared to the apostles. He wasn't an eyewitness himself and admitted so in his preface. So we have to take that into consideration. If this is a forgery, what a horrible way to start. Uh, but this is something that we need to consider as well as the Muratorian fragment, which is what I just talked about a few minutes ago. It made the statement that he was a well-known physician. So if anything was known about Luke at the time is that he was a fantastic medical doctor. It was somebody who had an understanding of medicine. It was somebody who had an understanding of healing. It's somebody who took great interest in healing. So naturally, we're going to consider him and go, all right. If a real physician who is known for his practice in medicine and known for being a medical doctor who traveled with Paul, if he wrote a biographical work of Jesus on behalf of the eyewitnesses in their testimony, and then he wrote an account like Acts, we should see his, really his, his background, his training, his understanding, his style of writing to fit his career that he had. And that's what I want to do today. I want to demonstrate that when we read these external comments, all saying, well, he's a beloved physician, he's a well-known physician, he was known as a physician, all of these things that we see that are said about him, we want to put that to the test and say, well, let's look at his writing and see if what's being said about him is true from the inside. We don't want just a historical argument. We want an intrinsic argument. We want something that's authentic, that can be proven from the inside. Now, Jerome said this as well, and this is where we're going to tune in really to the idea of the physician. He said, Luke is a physician of Antioch. So not only was he a well-known physician, he was particularly known as being a physician in Antioch. That was the location he did his practice, I guess. And in his writings, he says, Jerome says, his writings indicate that he was a physician. He was not unskilled in the Greek language, he was an adherent of the Apostle Paul and a companion of all of his journeying, and he wrote 
a gospel. Again, what we what we find right there is that Jerome is saying not only is he a well physician, he was a well physician in Antioch. Not only was he a well physician in Antioch, but more importantly, his writings indicate that he was a physician. So Jerome examined the text, not just the historicity of it. He looked at the text and said, when I read the Greek here, I see a man who knows medicine, a man who knows the healing arts of a medical doctor. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take Jerome's statement and we're going to say, all right, let's get into the mind of Jerome. Let's get in the mind of, of the writer and see if what they are saying is true. Well, right at the very beginning, we talked about this last week, and I want to kind of hone in on it a little bit more today and dealing with Luke's preface. What did he say from the very beginning that would demonstrate just in how he decided to write? Did that indicate to us that he was a medical doctor? Well, let's jump right into it. As we talked about, he said, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. And again, he points it out the fact that he is of the third category. He is not the one who is there. He wasn't a guy like Paul. And he's so he's therefore a third category here. He's one of the second descendancies of the apostles. He's somebody who was saved after the fact. And he recognizes by placing himself in the category of us that he is a part of the group of the many who have undertaken. But that they were doing it, not, I don't believe, necessarily in evil intent, although that came. I don't think that, the, that that's exactly what Luke was getting at when he said these things were done and pretty much failed the way that he uses the aorist verb there. I don't think that he was necessarily saying these people were evil and they were trying to put an evil account of Jesus together. The reason they were failing and not making it is because they weren't, as he stated, the original eyewitnesses. They were those who learned from the original eyewitnesses. And so to make a compilation that way is not really the best methodology. So Luke takes into account the necessity of knowing what Jesus said and did, but also at the same time realizing he can't be the one that authenticates this thing. So he states, it has also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the first to write to you an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things of which you have been instructed. So he's saying, hey, look, you've been taught a lot of things about Jesus. Some are good, some are bad, some are disputed. So let me do the hard work for you. I learned from the eyewitnesses and I investigated them to give you everything you need to know in an orderly sequence that will tell you of what you learned and what is true in what you learned. And this is a great move from Luke because he realizes that he himself independently is no different and will end no differently than those who are in the many that undertook a narrative. But what he uses in this open preface is straight from the medical manual. And we talked about this last week as well. Epikureson is the Greek word that he used here for undertaken. And he's the only one that uses this word. He uses it here and he uses it in Acts. He's the only one that uses this terminology. It occurs frequently in the time of Hippocrates, for example. In fact, I believe what Luke did is he used 
Hippocrates opening in one of his treaties uh, dealing with the nature of the healing arts and that Luke literally took the same line and actually used it on behalf of his work. Uh, for example, where it says he undertook or these people had undertaken to make an account of the life and ministry of Jesus. He's using the same medical language that Hippocrates used around 460 to 370 BC. And this is how Hippocrates' work is written. It says, as many as undertaken, that is epicurason, there's the word, to speak or to write concerning, this is where he changes it. In Hippocrates, it says the healing arts. Whereas he talks about it being the original eyewitness servants and people copying them. So he does take the same line of Hippocrates and using the word that medical doctors would use for attempts, the pursuit to find answers, the pursuit to find healing, the, per the pursuit to find solutions to the body falling away and decaying and being sick. He takes that same attempt that he probably learned in medical school, trained under some of the readings and writings of Hippocrates and others at that time. And he went and said, you know what? I'm going to write an account. And he used the wisdom and knowledge and understanding that he had in his medical training to produce that in the only way he knew possible to make the same attempt at getting the orderly, sequenced, accurate, and perfect attest, uh, testimony of Jesus and attestation of Jesus that he could possibly come up with. And he used the statements of Hippocrates to do it. Again, just from the beginning, we've, we see that Luke has the capacity and the ability and the understanding of the medical language that was often used in writings from Greek physicians in the past. He was trained. Whoever wrote this had an understanding of the ancient medical world of writers such as Hippocrates and using their same lingo. And it is ironic. And, and this isn't, and somebody say, well, well, that's just coincidental because they're all speaking Greek. Yeah, but he's using more of an ancient Greek term here. And more importantly to the argument than that is he is the only writer in the New Testament that uses this word here in Luke and later in Acts. So if John used it or you know, Mark used it, or even Paul used it, we, we could understand a little bit more what, what's happening and say, okay, well, this is just a common word that circulated, but this was actually a very small usage, a very limited amount of usage, because somebody who reads a bunch of books by Hippocrates would be familiar with the term. And Luke is allegedly a physician, and naturally he does. Let's continue into this, this thought, because I, I want to carry into this. So the word undertaken shows that these endeavors, again, were attempted but failed, and that's indicated through the aorist verb. But another thing that should be noted, again, is the many. Luke is a part of that. His account survived because it was authenticated by Paul. And one of the things that we demonstrated last week is what the church fathers have all noted is that Paul utilized Luke's gospel quite a bit. And now, let me say this. I don't believe that Luke necessarily sat down and wrote his gospel account in one setting at all. I think he collected the data over a large period of time. He spent some time in Jerusalem and in Antioch. And I believe it was there that he compiled a lot of his study material. 
And there he took that study material and produced a text that was orderly in sequence and produced a text that was test where he could actually say, I've investigated this thoroughly. And if that's the case, I don't believe he did this in one single setting. So I think he did this over a long period of time. But Paul would have had a lot of Luke's research. Paul would have been carrying a lot of Luke's research with him. Why? Because Luke went with him. So there's times where Paul is referencing what Jesus said and did, like in 1 Corinthians and the Eucharist. And we see that's closer related to what Luke's collection would be, but yeah, a little bit different. Why is that? Because I think 1 Corinthians was written before Luke's gospel, but the material and the study and the training that Luke received would have been similar in its origin and location that Paul would have. So Paul's utilizing the material he has, which would have been from the same sources that Luke had. So naturally, when they're both talking about Jesus' statements that night, their main guys or guy or whoever that was there, they would have been utilizing the same testimony and writing it down the way that they were told it, as Paul did and Luke did, because Paul wasn't there that night. Although he did speak with the resurrected Jesus, he still learned things of Jesus from the apostles, which probably Peter would have been his main guy. And then he was close to James, it seems like, in the sense of he had conversations with James. He even said that in Galatians 1. Uh, he deals with the fact that James was visited by Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. So he's already telling you in 1 Corinthians 15 the order in which he appeared. He went to Cephas and then James and then the other 12. So Paul would have known that in the order of that from Cephas and James and the 12. So Paul would have naturally received these informa this information from those that would have more than likely been there that very night. And I do believe that Paul did receive information from Jesus himself, obviously. But the source of material that Paul would have received would have been similar to that which Luke received. So 1 Corinthians would make sense why there's a little bit of difference, but it's closer related to Luke. Second Timothy is a little bit different. He starts speaking about uh, Jesus and, and uh, what he said about the a worthy, uh, a laborer is worthy of his, his hire. So a laborer is worthy to be paid that which he works going back to the law of the Torah and Deuteronomy, but also utilizing Jesus's understanding of it quoting it word for word the way that Luke had it written, similar to Matthew, but Matthew is one word difference. So he was clearly quoting Luke. And, and, and again, that goes back to the consistency of what Eusebius was trying to tell us about Luke's gospel, that the early church fathers had recognized it to be Paul's gospel because they continually made statements like when he said this according to my gospel, like he did in Romans, which makes sense because Romans and Luke would have been written around the same time. And I gave you my theory last week that it is very possible that Romans and Luke perhaps were, were sent together. Uh, both writings would have been sent together. I think that's very, very possible. And within that framework, he also said it in 2 Timothy and in dealing with, uh, in 1 Timothy, according to my gospel. 1 Timothy is actually the one where he mentions a labor is worthy of his heart. 2 Timothy is where he mentions according to my gospel. So both 1 and 2 Timothy would have been after Luke, in my opinion. So looking back on it, it makes sense. It would work. It would work with the timeline into which it was written. So that needs to be uh, reiterated as well. Now, a couple things. One, the letter would have come from the eyewitnesses and approved by the apostolic authority. So here's 
Luke. How did he get his writing through when many of his generation could not do it? Well, number one, the letter would have come from the eyewitnesses and approved by an apostolic authority, which would have been Paul. And the material that he received is from those who heard him and they taught him and he investigated and he interrogated and he explored what was out there that was not written. Because you got to remember, Luke has his own material that Matthew and Mark at that point did not share. Um, if you want to call it an L source or Lucan material, proto Luke, whatever you want to call it, he did have collection. He said he did. He investigated these things and he received this information and he wanted to, to go after elements that are not in the others. Uh, Mary, at the very beginning, the story with her, the song, the prayer that she has, the story that goes more in depth with John the Baptist and his parents, dealing with the elements of Jesus' childhood at 12 years old and being lost while he was uh, at the temple, and then going into other teachings that Jesus has that are not in the others. We think of the Good Samaritan, and we look at the importance of it. We look at the story of Lazarus, the rich man in Luke 16, and, and we look at things like the prodigal son in Luke 15 and those parables that really bring out the beauty and majesty of Jesus, his ministry, his teaching, and his love for the outcast, which would make sense because Paul is taking this gospel to the Gentile world, and they are the outcast. And this is all about making it right. Jesus went after the undesirable, those that would have been neglected and not seen as important. So he writes a gospel that would demonstrate those things. It's, it's brilliant. Even Marcion understood the importance of giving credit to Paul on this authority because he mutilated Luke's gospel and took out all the Lucan areas and just left what would have been from Paul's special material that was given to Luke. And he called it the gospel according to Paul. Well, that makes sense because he's trying to give himself more authority by putting Paul's name on it instead of Luke. Now, we've already seen the historical attestation of this gospel being authorized by Paul. There also needs to be good connections to the authorities that he says he investigated. Now, it's very likely that Luke's name was written on this account. What good is an account that's addressing an individual like Theophilus without giving any kind of credibility to who it came from? John Wenham said it this way, Luke's preface would have been meaningless to the original readers unless the author's name was known. Again, folks, put yourself in real-life situations these are not anonymous people writing to anonymous people that were sent by delivery, uh, you know, back then their FedEx and UPS guy, uh, by an anonymous person. There was a chain of custody and transmitting the Gospels to their proper locations and recipients. Luke had a letter. He had a, a writing that was collected and made claim to that he would have had a respectable and trustworthy person to deliver it to the individual that is addressed to. In this case, it's an individual. Uh, could be code name. We'll talk about the office later when we get to Acts. But it could be, even if it's just an individual or, or a name for a church, regardless of what you believe, these writings had intentionality behind them. And Theophilus is not going to receive a letter from some just anybody that's massively huge volume like this. And then a second one, I say, man, I don't know who this, this guy is that keeps sending me these really cool letters, but I, I, they're great. 
I, I really like these letters and I'm just going to start handing them out to churches and they're going to fall in love with this stuff and we're just going to run with it. Uh, but we don't know who it came from. You know, th folks, th that is ridiculous. It's absurd. The writer and the recipient and the deliverer of those writings to the recipient all knew who and where and when and why and how these things were to be brought about. They were not ignorant of the letters they were receiving. They were not ignorant of the letters they were transmitting. They were not ignorant of the letters that they were publishing on behalf of the writers. They were not ignorant of these things. So why Luke? Again, why Luke? If this is a forgery, why would the church trip this to Luke? As I stated at the beginning, it doesn't make sense. He was not well known. There's no point in giving him all the credit for this. Also, third, it's based on eyewitnesses. So why Luke? Doesn't make sense. Why would you attribute something to Luke? He's not an eyewitness. The letters would have been approved by eyewitnesses and more importantly, the apostolic authority of Paul. But three, we need to recognize that he's claiming this is based on the eyewitnesses. Notice, notice the phrase in the beginning of that preface there, just as in the introduction. This would indicate that the many were not apostolic men. As I stated, they would have been people closer to what you know, Mark was, he learned from an apostolic man, or Luke, he learned from an apostolic man, or Polycarp learned from an apostolic man, but they weren't apostles or eyewitnesses themselves writing only on behalf of them, which is a big deal. So Luke separates himself from the eyewitnesses and contextually places himself within the category of the crowd, many that ever undertook. This could also indicate that the many were not evil accounts, as I stated, but valiant attempts to spread the message of Jesus's fame, but failed. This allowed Luke to say, I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you this orderly sequence because he knew he had the backing of the apostles. He knew he had the backing of the eyewitnesses and he was telling their story for them. That would have gotten you received and accepted over the many who didn't do it that way. So, Let's look at some physician-like instances in the text. Physician-like instances that show up in the text here of the book of Luke. Number one, Luke is the only gospel writer that recorded Jesus' statement, physician, heal yourself, in Luke chapter 4, verse 23. It is stated as being a proverb that Luke would have perhaps recognized. Now, again, why didn't... Matthew record this, or or Mark. Remember, I believe that Luke is third on the list here as producing uh, content. So why did Luke focus on that? If it's this anonymous guy that nobody seems to know, well, he really takes a liking to physician terminology or instances just at the very beginning, the intro itself, using Hippocrates' wording. And he's the only one, the only one that comes after and deals with Jesus' statement, physician, heal yourself. Now, this proverb that Jesus taught may not have had any impact on a tax collector. It really wasn't worthy of putting into a text like his because he was more interested in Jesus' view of the law and Jesus' view of the Jews and Jesus' view of tax collectors and stories that he tells of how Jesus went and pursued the tax collector, if you would. But one of the things that we note is that each writer remembered things, but not 
all of them wrote them down. And even John admitted this in the end of his, that there were many things that Jesus said and did that the libraries could not contain. It's not that the writers of these gospels who are eyewitnesses wrote down everything they remembered. They wrote down what they remembered that was necessary for the biography they were painting of Jesus to their respected audiences. And in a case like this, Peter the fisherman would not see this as a necessity to produce, not that he wouldn't have maybe remembered it, but it wouldn't have been necessary for the message he was bringing to Rome, or that Matthew, the tax collector, would have been bringing as a message to his friends there in Jerusalem and the parts of Israel. So Luke, though, being a physician, while doing his investigation, one of the eyewitnesses had spoken up and said, yeah, I mean, Jesus gave this really cool proverb that you would appreciate, Luke. Um, Jesus sat there and talked about, physician, heal yourself. And that would have been a puzzling proverb if one of the apostles or the eyewitnesses that was with Luke said, I mean, you'd have really appreciated this when Jesus was on the earth. He mentioned a physician healing himself by using the old proverb. Luke would have been, no, that's fascinating. I need, I need to write that down. Picture yourself in this investigation process. Remember, Luke spent over a year in Jerusalem and in Antioch. He would have been listening to the eyewitnesses telling stories, and they would have naturally would have told him information that he would have been interested in. Why? Because he was a physician. Number two, he also demonstrates grace towards his fellow physicians when he recounts events surrounding the woman with the issue of the blood. Now, this, this is intriguing, because if you look at Mark chapter 5, verse 25 and 26, Mark writes it this way. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was not better, but rather grew worse. Now, Luke seems to almost make a clinical statement here, giving a, a doctor's note kind of statement about this. How, how would you diagnose this? And he gives more of a diagnosis than a frustrated statement. So th this is how Luke's viewpoint is once he learns the material of this event. He states it this way. Now, a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by many. See, see what Luke's doing is he's making a clinical statement about the inability of the woman to get healed because he realizes that physicians are practicing medicine. They're, they're helping, they're doing everything they can to give a diagnosis and a solution, a diagnosis and a solution. Peter, preaching as a fisherman, not a doctor, looks at this and says, the physicians tried to help her and it actually made it worse. Now Luke comes in, same story, and goes, okay, so they tried their best to diagnose this woman and couldn't find healing in the process of doing it. Every time they tried to give her a solution, problems consisted and per persisted and consistently got worse. And so Luke is a little bit more gracious in his synopsis of this thing. And, and uh, I mean, l this makes sense. Peter's very forthright. He's not one that minces words. He, he's the kind of guy that's just very blunt. And you see the personalities of these two guys come out on the same story. Peter's very straight point. Well, I mean, she went to the doctors and they just, they couldn't do it. They couldn't help her. In fact, they, they pretty much made it worse. 
I mean, that that's Luke looking at Peter's story and going, yeah, man, that did get worse. And I'm, th- I'm so thankful Jesus healed her. But man, she spent all of her livelihood and the physicians couldn't bring any healing to her. You see the difference. The doctor is sympathetic to the other doctors who tried and failed. Peter's just straight to the point. Yeah, they failed. <laughs> and in and, and the process of trying to help her, they actually made it worse. You see the personalities of the writers telling the same two stories. But why would somebody give such a great benefit of the doubt to the physician? Unless he himself was a physician and could understand this. Because I'm sure in his practice, there were many times that Luke would have tried to be helpful to somebody and failed, tried his best to find healing for them and to give them what they need to get better. And and it didn't work. I'm sure he could sympathize with somebody in the medical field who tried to help a woman for 12 years and exhausted every option. If he was a physician that did those same things, hey, he can relate to that. Number three. Physician wrote this. How would we know? Well, we have the Hippocrates statement in the intro. We have the only guy that mentions physician heal yourself in Luke 4. We have the statement in Luke chapter 8, verse 43, where he's a little bit more gracious to the physicians there than, you know, say Mark uh, writing for Peter. And number three, Matthew and Mark speak only of a fever in a certain instance where Luke makes sure to emphasize that it was a high fever, dealing with a miracle of Jesus who's dealing with the sick, who has a fever. And he makes sure to give a medical diagnosis, not just a fever. Now, you and I do the same thing. I'm not a medical doctor. I have a doctorate. and It's not in medicine. It's in canonistic textual criticism and theology. But I don't have one for the medical world. So I don't use a lot of medical terms or technicalities that they would. Um, you know, you and I, we do the same thing when, you know, one of my kids are sick or I'm sick. I tell somebody I had a fever. I have a fever. I'm not feeling good. I have a fever. Um, a medical doctor for you, if you call your doctor right now and you say, or, or one of the nurses or practitioners or, uh, yeah, I, I'm not feeling well. I have a fever. You can bet pretty often that your medical advisor is going to ask this question to that statement. How high is your fever? What is your fever? Because you see, 100 is a fever. 104 is a fever. But 104 is very dangerous, especially for an adult. So for you to call your medical doctor, you don't feel good. You say, I have a fever. The natural response of a medical doctor is to say, how high is your fever? Are we talking 104? Are we talking 101? Are we talking about 99.9? What, what is your fever? Now, they didn't have thermometers. They didn't have the ability to you know, scan your head and get your temperature back then. So terminology is important. The amount of sweating, the amount of uh, warmth on the body would have been very telling from a minor in a mild fever to a high fever. And it's ironic that Matthew and, and Mark just, again, plainly say it. And it's very possible Matthew's just using Mark's terminology following Peter's eyewitness testimony and utilizing it. That they would just say he had a fe- the child had a fever. It's a fever. 
Luke is a medical doctor and the miracle is heightened if we understand the nature of the fever. As a medical doctor, he wants to know, is it a mild fever or a high fever? And so he inserts one word, high. It's a high fever in Luke 4.38. Letting you know the severity and the danger of this fever. Obviously, it was a point of death. <laughs> and so he's giving us information that a doctor would need and would appreciate that somebody like Matthew and Mark would have not taken great detail into. It's like, dude, he had a fever. The child had a fever. End of story. We don't need any more information than that. Luke comes in and says it was a high fever, giving a very medical, doctorly perspective of the statement. And again, you can find that in Matthew 8.14. It's paralleled in Mark 1.30. And then we see it here in Luke chapter 4. In verse 38, which I, I will be glad to, to read for us. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. And Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. So again, you got this uh, Simon's mother-in-law. So this is Peter's mother-in-law. And, and remember, Peter being behind Mark's. So and we go, okay, my mother-in-law is uh, sick, doing very poorly, and had a fever. Um, that's the only terminology a fisherman's going to give to it. Tax collector, probably following a fisherman's eyewitness testimony here, goes, yeah, she had a fever. Uh, and, I, and, and, and I kept saying he, it's she. She had a fever. And so now you have Luke come on the scene, and he's reading Mark's story of it, because I, I, I'm, it's pretty, pretty good evidence that he is using Mark's gospel along with perhaps Matthew. He's reading them, and then he's like, all right, that's important. Hmm. I wonder what kind of fever she had. So perhaps in his time being in Jerusalem and Antioch, he spent some time with Peter and said, Hey, Peter, when Jesus healed your mother-in-law, what, tell me a little bit more about that. And Peter may have said to him like, uh, well, I mean, she was sick and this is what symptoms she had. And, and, um, and, you know, Luke being a doctor would have said, well, when you, when you touched her or when somebody touched her, was it, was it a high fever? Was it dangerously high? I mean, how was she sweating a lot? What kind of, and Peter would have probably described her symptoms and her feel of the body. And Luke was like, okay, so it, this was severe. So that's a, that's an important detail. I'm going to add this one word right here to, to give my, my audience clarity on how severe the sickness was of your mother-in-law. And so I'm going to add this one little word. And again, it's not contradicting Peter, especially if he's sitting with Peter. He's just putting his medical physician technique and practice into the narrative to be more specific the way a medical doctor would. Number four, Luke speaks of certain man being full of leprosy. Again, keyword, full of leprosy, uh, demonstrating an advanced case of leprosy as compared to just having leprosy. Because if you go to Matthew chapter eight, verse two through four, it's just that a man had leprosy. Again, a tax collector sees a guy who has leprosy on him. What stage of leprosy, what severity of leprosy, how much one spot of leprosy is enough for them to go unclean, 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 stay away, stay away go to your own village of lepers. You know, that would have been the attitude of a tax collector or even guys that are fishermen. A medical doctor doesn't want to just know, just like with the fever, 
okay, they had leprosy. What what we dealing with here? Are we dealing with a severe case, advanced case of leprosy? We talking about just a breakout on the arms and legs? We talking about on the face, the deformity of face, hands, feet? What kind of stage, what set of stage of leprosy is this person in? Luke gives us the phrase full leprosy in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. And again, these things are important to note. You say, well, that is just one word here. But, but when we're looking in the details, that's the goal here. Our goal is to look into the details and distinguish. All right, we have a claim from church fathers that he was a well-known physician. So he's got a reputation to keep as a physician. So if he's telling these stories, that reputation is going to precede itself a little bit. Uh, they're saying that Jerome saying, look, you can go into his writings and see physician tones. They're everywhere. I mean, that's that's what Jerome's telling us. Well, is this true? I mean, is this true when we read it this way? And so we have the phrase here in, in Luke 5, 12. He was one, uh, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of, or it could be translated all over him, leprosy. There was leprosy all over him. So that means he was a severe case. And that would have been huge to what he's trying to do when he's making this statement of diagnosis. Play race, I found the word, play race in Greek. He uses the adjective full of lepros. Play race lepros in Greek. Full of leprosy, whereas Matthew just says lepros. So again, you see in the fine details, a careful analysis of a sick person. Number five, which is actually really number six, if we count the uh, preface. He is the only one that makes mention of Jesus' circumcision. You say, well, this is a small deal. Well, no, it's not. Why? <laughs> again, Luke's probably a Gentile from Antioch, as we've seen. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, he's the only one that states, the eighth day were completed so that it's time for his circumcision He's the only one that does this. What makes this unusual is that he's the only non-Jewish writer. I mean, so you got Mark writing on behalf of a Jew, Peter. You got Matthew, a Jew, writing on behalf of the apostles as well, the Jews. Uh, and John is a Jew. None of them have the decency to mention Jesus' circumcision, but Luke did. Well, why is that? Well, one, he's a Gentile, so that would have fascinated him a little bit. Two, he's a doctor. If he's a medical doctor, that's going to be involved in the details when he's telling about Jesus being presented at the temple, which they, which, again, Matthew and others, you know, they would have had fascination in these stories themselves, but they weren't going for that kind of a setup and biography. That wasn't the point of theirs. And here. Luke would have interviewed either Mary herself, if she was still living at the time, or James, the brother of Jesus, who Mary would have told and taught this to his children. And he would have said, either way, he got the information about Mary and Jesus' childhood from the family. And in this, because Jude would have been alive, James would have been alive, they're reading this. They're involving themselves in this material. And one thing that a medical doctor would pick out is not only that he just... He went to the temple to be dedicated like a Jew, but went through the process of being circumcised, having the medical procedure done of circumcision. 
This would have fascinated him. Also, number six, or again, it could be number seven if we count the intro. Malchus, the one who Peter hacked the ear off of, though he's unnamed, and we talked about that. If you missed it, go back to uh, Mark's account when I dealt with the uh, protective anonymity and why we see things take place there. We're going to talk more about it in John's account. But for the sake of time, Malchus, who's unnamed in Luke's gospel, his ear was cut off. He talks about Malchus's ear being healed. Now, again, Matthew 26, and, and I'm going to read this to you just so that you can see the difference. Matthew 26, verse 51. I want you to hear it from the beginning stages because Matthew would have been at this scene, okay? Peter was definitely at the scene. He did it. I mean, this, this is his fault. It says, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus, which we know from John is Peter, reached, drew his sword, and struck the slave of the high priest, didn't name him Malchus, which John did, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into your place, and all those who take up the sword will perish with the sword. Now, I find it interesting that he doesn't mention one of the most important details there. Well, maybe Mark does. Maybe Mark mentions this in Mark chapter 14. So let's see. Mark chapter 14 tells the same story, naturally. Uh, again, Peter was the one that created this mess. Uh, verse 47, but one of those who stood by drew his sword, being Peter, struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me in against the man inciting revolt? Every day I am with you within the temple grounds. And he goes through the whole process. And it's interesting as well, by the way, that Peter... Uh, telling the story of something that happened himself did not tell you what Jesus said to him. Uh, it must have haunted him a little bit <laughs> for a while. But Matthew, uh, he remembered it and he had no problem writing it. But Matthew and Mark didn't tell us something. Um, they didn't tell us what happened next. But Luke did. But you say, what about John? Maybe John did. Okay, let's check John. John 18. He was there. John was there. Now, again, he's going to tell us the details. Uh, he's going to unveil the names. And again, we'll talk more about that later when we get to John. But John chapter 18, verse number 10 says, two men went up. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong section. But but John here would have been at the garden. He would have been very close probably to Jesus. I'm pretty sure he would have heard a lot more than some of the others. But it's going to be important as he comes into this in verse number 10 of chapter number 18. that Simon Peter revealed him since he had a sword drew it struck the high priest slave and cut off the right ear and the slave's name was malchus again unveiling it so jesus said to peter then he tells him what he said but none of them tell you about him picking the ear up and healing it luke does luke twenty two fifty one does he tells you what happened and what jesus did about it not just instruction wise it says, and Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers, temple elders, come, have you come with swords and clubs as you would against inciting revolt? While I was with you, Dale, in the temple, he asked them these questions. But in verse 51, Jesus responded and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Why Luke? All four accounts mention this story. Three of those guys were there. Peter. Mark, as well as John and Matthew. Why 
didn't they tell that part of the story? They they told other miracles. It just didn't fascinate them. And, and again, that would have been a hard night for the three that would have been there. The, 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 the things that were going on, that was probably the least of their concerns. In fact, they're probably pretty mad at Malchus for even being there. Put yourself in their position. This guy came to haul Jesus away and bring him before the leaders and the chief priests that killed him. I don't think they're buddies with Malchus, okay? Uh, I, I, I don't think that they care to tell his redemptive story of his ear. Luke, being a physician, would have heard that amongst his interviewers and said, wow, that's important. I see I see. Peter didn't mention that part. And uh, I noticed Matthew didn't mention that. So let me let me add that into mind because I think that's a really cool detail. Why? Because he's a doctor. The guy's ear gets chopped off and it's put back on. That's going to be important to him. Seven. Two miraculous birth narratives. John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 5 through 25. Born to elderly parents who are way past childbearing years. Jesus, born of a virgin. Chapter 1, verse 26 through 56. Uh, yeah, I would say that's going to ignite some interest of a medical doctor. You have two miraculous births. A child born without a father in a miraculous conception given by the Holy Spirit, and he would have recognized the significance of that from a medical perspective, probably having delivered some babies in his life. Two, elderly folk who are way past childbearing years all of a sudden conceive and give birth to a healthy child. Not just that they they became pregnant, but she survived the pregnancy. The child survived the pregnancy, which was percentage very low for even young people. A lot of death and childbearing for the child and the mother at that time for young people, much less an elderly woman like Elizabeth folks, big deal, big details that he is the only one who focuses on that aspect. Number eight, the woman with an 18 year back condition in chapter 13, verse 11 through 13. Notice what it says. A woman was there who had been disabled Asthenes by a spirit for over, get it, 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Athenaeus is the word that he uses for disabled. We're going to talk about that. And the other word is could not straighten up when Jesus saw her and called out to her, woman, you are free of your disability. So, a couple things. Luke diagnosed her here. She was diagnosed with a term only Luke uses. And he uses this word to deal with being bent over, which is two words put together. And he makes this claim by hearing the story about her and making sure to include the fact that she was medically disabled and that she was bent over and he uses a medical term that nobody else uses. It's only a term to Luke. And he made sure to document how long the condition was. Now he did this for the woman with the issue of the blood too, but here independently telling this story, he not only gives a diagnosis of her condition 
and the symptom of the of the condition, but he also gives the timeline of when it began and how long it's been going, 18 years. And then Jesus says, you are free. Apoleluse is the ancient Greek metal ter medical term for relaxing tendons and membranes and for taking off bandages. It's an ancient medical term. And when Jesus said, woman, you are free of your disability. Apoleluse, you are medically free from being bent over with these tendons that are holding your back bent over. They've been loosened. They've been relaxed. They, they have been released to sit up straight. So you have a diagnosis. You have a timeline of the diagnosis. You have terminology of medical that only Luke would know. And he drives the fascination part of Jesus using a statement to her that a medical doctor would have used. As a teacher and a rabbi, he heals her and uses a term of release that was known in ancient Greek medical terminology. And Luke probably hearing about this would have thrown a hallelujah fit and wrote this one down smiling when he learned about this miracle. Yet Luke is unique to it. Number nine, and we'll end on this. There's others, by the way. We're hitting some highlights here. But number nine, the Good Samaritan. Luke added a number of medical touches in chapter 10, verse 33 and 34 of Luke, which, pro which prove him distinctly a physician well-versed in wound treatment as practiced in that time in the first century. The use of the wine for the soothing of the wounds was recommended by, guess who? Hippocrates. The very man that he uses the writings of undertaken to start his gospel out, he uses the same terminology and recommendations about using wine for soothing a wound. And later by Galen or Gallen, an early recognition of the antiseptic qualities of alcohol. They were already getting onto this stuff even back then that we now see major benefit from. Experience also taught the ancients that wounds bathed in oil would heal better. The coating would serve to protect the wound from what we now know to be external contamination or bacteria. So when dealing with the story of Jesus and telling it of the Good Samaritan when he finds the man that's beat up, he uses medical terminology of recommendation that Hippocrates would have had as well as Galen and others who would have recommended these certain methodologies as natural antiseptics to prevent uh, infection and disease and bacteria growth. And he would have honed in on that. Why? Because he was a medical doctor. <laughs> so to me, and again, there's many others, but it demonstrates to me the importance and the necessity of looking at these things and notifying that Luke had great interest and connection to the medical terminology that's unique to his writings in the whole New Testament. And that he tells stories or details of stories that only a physician would appreciate. Again, if this is not a physician that wrote this, it is somebody who's trained by physicians or familiar with physicians. To me, the person of interest is Luke by everybody in church history and everybody that had received the letter from him uh, to the churches. And there was no dispute about its author. 
Uh, so with that being said, we cannot just say, well, historically it makes sense. It also intrinsically makes sense with these historical claims. The person of interest is matched with the writer's techniques, knowledge, and abilities. So looking into this, we're going to continue through the Lucan material as we go through. We're going to finalize some work in the book of Acts, look at him there, and kind of do the same thing. And we're going to find that what we deal with here is important to find both historic claim, intrinsic claim, to defend both. We, we want them to make sense. And the way to do that is to, to study both. And I see both here. I see both the same guy. It makes perfect sense historically and intrinsically that the physician who made history, he made history in the sense of he's a well-known physician for his doctor skills, but he made history not as a doctor, but as a doctor who wrote a biography of a man named Jesus by compiling and studying the narratives of the eyewitnesses and producing it on behalf of Paul and his ministry journeys to the Greek churches. And he published it for him and it circulated with the good news of Jesus that he is after and interested in the outcast. He's interested in saving those who are on the outside. It's a beautiful story. Well, thank you for tuning in. Please make sure you check us out. If you have not followed us or liked us yet on YouTube, please hit that like and subscribe button right there on the right underneath this video. We'd love for you to see all the other videos we produce uh, from guys from Santi and Finding Truth and John Beasley, who's done uh, Old Testament works. And now he's pr uh, intentionally looking at the deity of Christ, the incarnation. He just did a video on the Logos from John 1. Make sure you tune in and check that out producing other content material as well as research. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. You can also go on our website. It's on the bottom of your screen at explorechristianity.net. You can find us there. If you want to just follow the podcast and the audio here, you can find me on Apple and Spotify and other avenues as FACTS. That's an acronym. It's spelled out F-A-C-T-S. You can find all the other audio there. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate it. Again, make sure you like and subscribe as we continue to produce more content. If you have any questions, leave it at the end of the video and I'll make sure to check later on. Grace and peace to you. Blessings from the Lord.